But whether it's the holly or the poinsettias or the wreaths or the other marks of the season, we've, we've got so many reminders that it's Christmas. It's Christmas Eve. And for the last four weeks, we've considered the four stories of Christmas. We've looked at the first three Gospels. We've looked at the Gospel of Luke and, and Matthew and John. Today we're looking at Mark, but Luke and Matthew have a Bethlehem story. Luke and Matthew uh, are, are, one of the, are two of the four, four stories. There's one gospel with four emphases, emphases, or emphasis, emphases. I just had to do that because you didn't get the joke. <laughs> one gospel with four emphases. Luke and Matthew tell the story of Bethlehem, the story of the baby. John, not the John the Baptist we're going to be reading about in just a minute, but John who was the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple uh, that was the, the dear friend of, of Jesus at the end of his life, the only disciple who, who made it all the way to the end of his life and was not, did not martyr himself for the cause of Christianity. He reflected on his life on the why Jesus came to earth on the why of Emmanuel. In the same way, Mark reflects, goes quickly into the story. It doesn't say, you know, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away, far away. it just goes right into it and it says, it says Jesus, it says the gospel of, of, of Jesus Christ and jumps right into Nazareth and skips way over Bethlehem and gets to the point and purpose of the gospel, and that is that God would dwell with us, Emmanuel. It's a season of Emmanuel. It's a season where we recognize that God is able to enter into the creation, to celebrate that God is able to be present with us in all our moments. This, these four stories have, have marked for each one of us the different kinds of, of seasons that we may be in the middle of. You're in the middle of a movie somewhere, Right? It's good to be reminded, whatever you're in the middle of, you're in the middle of it. You're in the middle of the movie. It's not the end of it. And the season of Emmanuel is the distinctive of our faith, that God transcends the moment. Let, let me give you a, a, a brief philosophical history, okay? So the Stoics were those who believed that, uh, that, that, that God was the sum total of everything, a materialist view of life, the universe, and everything. Their, their, their modern-day motto would be, it is what it is. All right. The Epicureans, on the other hand, were on the other end of the scale, and they, they believed that God was just completely other, that creation and, and, and whatever made creation were absolutely distinct from each other, and there was, there was no interface whatsoever. So I guess, I guess their motto would be, it isn't what it is. I don't know, that's not very good. That's the best I could come up with. So on, on this scale, you've got, you've got this idea of, of, of the material being the sum total of what is. And on the other hand of the philosophical scale, you've got this idea that there's this complete Gnostic separation between what we see and, and what ultimately will be. But what we see at Bethlehem 
is the recognition that, that God entered into his creation. It's hard for us to understand God being fully, fully God and fully man. It's, it's a little like uh, when I was coaching soccer went to, to young, young children, they wouldn't let me coach older ones, but the, the, the young, young children, it was a little like coaching. It was more like handing out suckers and that sort of thing. But, but when I was coaching young children, I, I remember meeting this one boy, and, and it happened to be that that Sunday, they, their family came to our church for the very first time. And after the worship service, he looked up at me and he said, you're my coach. How can, he was like looking at his dad going, how can he be both, hey, are you both a pastor and a coach? He just couldn't conceive that I, I could do both those things. And, it, and Beth also pointed out that I had trouble doing both those things. But, <laughs> but, but it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the idea that there's certain cognitive uh, development level that, 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 that children have where you can't be both mom and, and something else, both dad and something else. But that's the season of Emmanuel, the season that says that God is with you in the middle of the movie in anything, anything that you're in the middle of, he's in the middle of it with you. And so our question today, though, is this. As we look at Mark chapter 1 and we see John preparing the way of, for the Lord in the wilderness, which is a place of testing, and then Jesus coming right after that, him being sent out into the wilderness to be tested. Why is it so often in life that in order to recognize that God is with us in the present moment, that we must be tested even with fire, that what we're developing and building around us, that, that it must be, why does it require a test? Why do we require a test in order to recognize Emmanuel, in order to live with God in the present moment? Not by and by, pie in the sky, but here and now, that God is with us. Why does it require a test? Let's take that question to Mark chapter 1, starting with verse 1 through verse 11. Hear God's word this morning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John with, was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being opened and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. 
May God bless us today through this reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Jesus was teaching his disciples, so he sat down and said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And Peter interrupted him and said, Are we going to have to know this? And Bartholomew said, Should I be writing this down? And Andrew said, What does this have to do with real life? And John said, Will this be on the test? And Jesus wept. Okay, it's not that kind of test. The kind of test that refines us with fire is the difficulty that you're facing in the middle of your circumstance. Why does it require? Why why does understanding what we're really orienting life around, what's the center and most important priority of life, why do we need to be tested? Well, the answer is, the test helps us to prepare room. The test helps us prepare him room. I'll explain through these two points. First of all is this. The test brings a pause. And the test has a point. So let's look at the pause And the point of the test, the difficulty that you may be facing in the middle of. First, the pause. The pause, any pause, any difficulty gives us cause for pause, right? And it tends to bring to the surface, it tends to expose what we've made room for in our hearts. What really has our hearts? What, what really has our deepest loyalty? What has our full attention? What, what is the weight and worth of our lives? The pause exposes what we've made room for, what's crowding things. Have you ever noticed uh, that how difficult it is that when you get a text and you're talking with somebody across the table, how difficult it is to not look at that text, right? Have you noticed that? You've noticed that. Yes, you have. You're not saying anything, but I've seen you do it. And I've, I've had that same experience. I'm, I, here comes, I'm, I'm having this conversation, and here, here is this. And, and then when somebody else does it, now you really notice it then, right? When someone else across the table, they, they kind of look down a little bit. Or if they fact check you in the middle of your conversation with the Internet, right? That's terrible. That's annoying. We do have hurry, noise, and crowds all around us. Richard Foster in his book, Celebration of Discipline, who, who was, is one of the great voices calling people back to, uh, to slow down a little bit, to simplify life, and to practice certain spiritual disciplines that, are, that, 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 that century after century have proven to be good for us. He says there are three things that keep us from drawing near to God. Three things that keep us from developing intimacy with God. Hurry, noise, and crowds. These are our drugs. Hurry, noise, and crowds. Our drugs. What are they drugging us against? 
What, what do hurry, noise, and crowds numb us against? Well, Judith Shulevitz, many years ago in the New York Times, she, she wrote an article entitled, The Eternal Murmur of Self-Reproach. The Eternal Murmur of Self-Reproach. Think about that for a minute. There's a static. You have it, I have it. Static in the background. Static that, that talks about shame and blame and fear and anger. And we never fully resolve all of it, do we? It's never all fully resolved. Why? Because we don't pause long enough to resolve it. What do we do? We seek hurry and noise and crowds. Now, I, I read uh, a little article recently that, that said, I'm just going to come right out and say it. The parents in Home Alone are the worst parents of all time, all right? Now, we don't want to believe that we identify with that level of chaos, that you could get on a plane without your child. <laughs> I know this is the most ridiculous of the four movies. Why did I? But, but isn't it true that the reason why that movie Home Alone has staying power is we do identify a little bit with the chaos of that family. Hurry and noise and crowds. Why did John go out into the wilderness? Why did, it, why did Jesus' ministry begin with someone preparing his way? Because there's so much and so little we do to pause and to prepare our heart's room to receive him. John was preparing his way in the wilderness as an image of what's needed and required to strip away some of the hurry, some of the noise, some of the crowds, some of the clutter. And there he is standing as an ascetic. Asceticism is sort of a, a distancing of yourself from the pleasures and, and the comforts of life. And he's there in this hair shirt. It's kind of like wearing a, it's kind of like cutting a, a hole, you know, three holes in a burlap sack and putting it on and putting a, a rope around you and saying, that's, that's going to be what I'm going to wear for the next 40 days. And there he was stripped of all the comforts of friendship, of, of candles, of a well-prepared meal, A pause, a pause to prepare room. The hurry and the noise and the crowds. A few years ago on a Wednesday night, I told a story about Pete Scazzaro that really illustrates better than Home Alone, the kind of distraction that we live with that keeps us from developing a strong and personal relationship with God, Emmanuel, God with us in this present moment. Pete was a pastor and his wife, pastor's wife, of course, and they dealt with a lot of the kind of chaos that you deal with in a busy church, a large church, and they did not have very good boundaries. In other words, they didn't say no to anything. 
when someone dropped by their house, for example, uh, Pete let him in and he was talking and talking and talking and would not talk. And Pete didn't say, hey, look, we're in the middle of something. Can you come back? Can we schedule some some time? And and there his wife, Jerry, was very annoyed with him. And uh, the conversation went on and on and on. And he didn't. He, he was he was lying to the person. He was he was upset with the person, but not saying that you know, wasn't taking responsibility for himself and for his time. He wasn't wasn't communicating. He was he was being a wimp and he admits this. And all of a sudden, in the middle of that moment, Jerry said, where's our daughter? And she panicked and she ran to the backyard, ran right to the pool. And there was her daughter standing on her tiptoes in the shallow end, wasn't able to swim, three years old, with her, her mouth and nose barely above the surface. She'd been standing there for five minutes, could have drowned. This was their wake-up call, their pause. Oh, they paused. They paused for ministry. She almost paused permanently for ministry. They, they, they tell the story that they needed to recognize that they had been numb to the things that were driving them. There, there is static in the background. There is shame. There's fear. There's anger. There are all kinds of unresolved things that we, we never pause long enough to resolve. And so, too, with this ministry couple, they, they, they were being driven by their fears of rejection or whatever it was. They needed a pause for, for that murmur of self-reproach to come to the surface, for them to hear it fully and well, and for them to be able to deal with it. Why does it take testing? Why does it take testing? For our hearts to prepare him room because of the hurry and the noise and the crowds. Maybe you're cynical about this message. Maybe you're here for the first time in a long time. Maybe, 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 maybe you realize that there's something going on, though, beneath the surface that you hadn't dealt with. And your cynicism, your cynicism has to do with your being numb. Well, that's, that's all of us to some degree. To a greater or lesser degree, we cannot es- fully escape the distractions. And, and we welcome it. And we make so much room in our hearts and lives for all of it. But it crowds, and then we don't deal with it. And then we have this sort of dumbed-down version of the faith, and we think, ah, it's not really doing what it needs to do. And what it really needs to do is it needs to confront you at the very place. It needs to strip at the very place. And so not just in the most wonderful time of the year, But in every moment, in the middle of your difficulty, God would present himself to you as the one who would be known by you, who would be present with you in the moment. And that is the point. There's the pause of the test, but there's also the point of the test. And that is that God isn't present with us after everything gets better, but in the moment of difficulty. Emmanuel... God with us, would be with us in the moment, not just after the moment. Not, not this idea that God can uh, make a, bring a silver lining after the difficulty or that, that bad things happen for some kind of reason we're going to discover later, but that God would be present with you and it may be his best gift to you in the moment. Now, there's some moments that are easy to dwell in, right? Kringle moments. You know what a kringle is? 
I can dwell in a Kringle moment. I, I'll tell you that. A Kringle is a, is a Danish pastry that someone gave us many years ago. It's now become one of our, our great traditions, our, our great Christmas tradition, traditions in the Filson family is, is this Kringle. And we take the Kringle out and it thaws and we've had it in the freezer. They send it to us and, and, and we, we, have the, we bake it in the morning and I can dwell in a Kringle moment. Can you dwell in a Kringle moment? I can dwell in that kind of moment. But moments of difficulty, we're looking for the exits, aren't we? Moments of difficulty, we want to make a beeline. We want, we want to draw the straightest line between where we are and getting out of that thing. And here in the beginning of Mark, it's saying, there's something for you there in the moment. In the moment of difficulty, there's something there for you. But we can't see. Without the test, we have difficulty seeing what needs to be seen. You think, oh, I'm really smart, Tim. I, I, I can see what's going on. I've, I've been at this a while. I've reflect a lot. I think a lot. I read everything. I know. I, I read the New York Times and, and the Wall Street Journal. I know what's going on with, with, uh, with uh, all sides of things. I'm, I'm very astute. I don't need to pause. It's amazing to think that, that there were... There are certain experts who think that they know it all. Have you ever noticed that, that experts think they know it all? The, 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 the director of the U.S. Patent Office in, in the early uh, 20, uh, 20th century, in, in 1920s, he said everything that is going to be invented has probably been invented by now, in 1923. Yeah, it's true. The winner of the Nobel Prize for Physics said this. I checked this out on Snopes, all right? So y'all can, can fact check. Don't fact check me with your phone right now. I know you're, some of you are fact checking me right now. The winner of the, the Nobel Prize for Physics said, we'll never, this is in the early 20th century. He said this, we'll never be able to tap into the power of the atom. The atom bomb it just went off like a bomb in your head. Okay, now you're getting it. We'll never be able to tap into the power. The experts don't know it all. One of the Warner brothers said this. Now, who would ever want to hear act, an actor talk? All right, this was before they had, it was just sort of the movies were just silent movies. And who would ever want to hear an actor talk? The experts don't know it all. You don't know it all. And sometimes it requires a test to show you, you, you. Good friend of mine, known him for decades. Several years ago, we had fallen out of touch. Over the course of a year, we hadn't spoken. I just called him up out of the blue. I felt bad I hadn't talked to him. It had been probably 10 or 11 months since we had spoken. And two hours later, I knew what was going on with his life. He had had the worst year of his life. But... There was something in his voice that was so different. There was a resolve and a peace and a joy that I hadn't noticed before. The wheels had come off in his family life. And he wasn't looking for the silver lining. There wasn't a silver lining yet. Nor was he projecting at me that he had it all figured out and knew all the answers. He was telling me, and for the very first time, this is one of the smartest people I know. 
for the very first time, he was, he was telling me in, in plain English where he really stood with life, the universe, and everything. I was so moved by what he had to say because here he was in the brokenness, seeming stronger and more resolved and more joyful than I'd ever known him in the middle of the difficulty, in the middle of it, not waiting. Verse eight of our scripture says this, I've baptized you with water, but he, the one who is coming, will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it takes fire to burn away, to shake the, put it this way, a different, different image. Sometimes God will shake our foundation to see what really is there that is, is enduring, that's valuable, that matters. Can we thank him for that in the middle of the moment when we can? Then we can receive him. Then we're beginning to make room for him. Then we can know God not just by and by, but here and now. You see, my friend that I talked about earlier, like most of us, had a false front, as we all do. He wanted to project that he had the wrinkle-free life and that all of his children, everything was just super with them and, and, and marriage and family, everything was going great. But isn't it amazing, and I've heard this time and time again, when, when something goes on that you cannot hide, like you get an illness or something like that. It, it often happens in the church where I find that someone is dealing with an illness and they'll say to me, I didn't realize how many people out there were, were dealing with this same thing. And maybe for the first time in their life, there's a great freedom in the moment. There's a great freedom to connect with people. And what this friend of mine found was, a, was community. He found his real friends. He found a, a, a sense of connectedness with the people around him. And he found a transcendent connection with God in his difficult moment. Because why? Because the test's point is to prepare him room. Maybe the greatest gift that that God can give you, apart from all of the lists that we make and check twice. Maybe the greatest gift is himself. What if your test is there just so that you can make more room for that gift? Peter Lightheart put it, puts it this way. He says this, we're tempted to think that the word speaks, the word of God speaks when Jesus turns water to wine, heals a man who's been lame for decades, gives sight to a man born blind and calls the corpse of Lazarus out of the grave. Those signs do reveal the word of God, but the word also speaks in Jesus' hunger, his fatigue and his thirst supremely God speaks his glory in the shredded flesh of the crucified. Here's the good news. Because God has spoken in the flesh of the word, he can speak glory into your shame, into the power of the present moment, even in your weakness and triumph in the midst of loss 
and defeat. May every heart prepare him room. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the season of Emmanuel. And I pray that every heart in this room, every life, and all those whom we influence and affect, Lord God, that you would enter in to the present moment, in the middle of the movie, in the difficulty that we face, that we may find not just a sense of happiness or a silver lining, but a deepening and quiet but sure sense of joy, joy to the world. Amen.